This episode is dedicated to Claude Laude for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Zach. This is Ron. And this is Fight Study. This weekend was both exciting and overwhelming for fight fans. Not only was there UFC 268, a consequential card that featured two title fights and various other matches with title implications, but there was also the super middleweight unification boxing bout between Saul Canelo Alvarez versus Caleb Plant. Before I talk to wrestling coach Zach Goldrosen and pro tie boxer Ron King III about UFC 268, Let's first discuss Canelo versus Plant. Despite being the consensus pound-for-pound best and a four-division world champion, Alvarez said, quote, This is the most important fight of my career, end quote, because it would make him the first undisputed super middleweight champion and the first Mexican to do it. Plant was coming into this bout as an undefeated champion, having never been dropped in his previous 21 victories. As has been the narrative for most of Alvarez's recent fights, Canelo was facing a test in the bigger man, and Plant was facing his biggest challenge period. Yet, perhaps due to some bad blood in the buildup, highlighted by an onstage scuffle during their first press conference, Alvarez started the fight with more aggression than usual. Canelo stalked Plant, backing him up and drawing out his jabs. Plant, as expected, threw more volume but Canelo was able to pin Plant against the ropes and land heavy body shots. Canelo kept his guard high, but rather than keeping them static, he used his gloves to deflect and parry Plant's punches, setting him up for the double left attack. Hook to the body, hook to the head. Plant stuck to his game plan and evaded while jabbing and firing quick combinations when the opportunities presented themselves. However, with the combination of being on the move and Alvarez keeping a tight defense, there was little damage and, most importantly, little to earn the pound-for-pound king's respect. Canelo invested to the body, but unfortunately for Plant, every one of his punches also paid dividends for Canelo. The more that punches bounced off of Canelo's gloves, the more information he gathered. As Plant rolled with the punches, the more he ducked onto Canelo's hooks to the body. When Plant turned away, Canelo met him with a right overhand. Plant found himself against the ropes in every round. Since Plant relied on the Philly shell and shoulder rolls for defense, Canelo, the crafty veteran, used his lead hand to either pin Plant's head against the ropes or pin Plant's arm against his body, opening him up for a right uppercut or overhand. Plant, for his part, stood in the pocket with Canelo so long as it was in the middle of the ring with space to back away. But after Canelo gathered enough information on Plant's habits, Canelo dropped his hands and relied on his head movement to avoid Plant's punches while loading up his own power shots. The combination of shifting his weight away from Plant's strikes only to rebound back into a strike of his own is what gave Canelo's later shots that extra power. Canelo, at his core, is an aggressive counterpuncher. Eventually, Canelo had Plant ducking away from his feints which drew Plant onto Canelo's hooks and uppercuts. 
when Plant misjudged what he thought was a left hook to the body by lowering his defense, Canelo leaped into a left hook to the head. As Plant ducked away from what he thought was another hook to the head, Canelo met Plant with a vicious uppercut. Plant went down for the first time in his career. Plant got up before the 10 count and, without hesitation, told the referee Russell Mora that he wanted to continue. However, the end was academic as Canelo swarmed for the finish. The end came at 65 seconds of the 11th round, and Saul Canelo Alvarez made history once again by becoming the first undisputed super middleweight champion. Even more remarkable, this was Canelo's fourth title fight in 11 months, cleaning out an ultra-competitive division in less than a year. Perhaps now, the question should no longer be about where Canelo is among today's pound-for-pound best, but where he stands among the all-time greats. And since the UFC also had one of their biggest pay-per-views for the year on the same day, perhaps another pressing question is, when will UFC champions get paid like boxing champions? Now, let's move on to UFC 268, Usman versus Covington 2, co-headlined by the rematch between Rose Namajunas and Zhang Weili for the strawweight championship. Zach and Ron wrote a preview for this match where they keyed in on the importance of wrestling for this fight which turned out to be true, but not only for Zhang, but also for Nama Yunus. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. But wrestling also became important for the main event as well, since in the first Usman-Covington fight, there were no takedown attempts. So let's talk about the main event between Kamaru Usman beating Colby Covington again, this time by unanimous decision. Let's start with you, Zach. What was your read of the wrestling in this fight? It seemed like it was more about opening up more attempts to strike on the feet. Usman was um, doing this nice little level change to fake to a single when Covington was standing in southpaw, fake into the near leg. But he wasn't really committing to shots on that leg. And even when Usman was on top, he he didn't seem to really care that much about being on top. And after the one takedown, he let Covington up pretty much immediately. But it was very good wrestling. What happened in that one scramble where it looked like Covington got in deep and then they rolled through and then it ended up with Usman on top again? So what Usman did there, um, it's called the chest wrap. Um, What it sounds like, he wrapped his arms around Covington's chest. He had realized that Covington had already beaten Usman's first few lines of defense. His hands didn't really have a chance to sprawl on it. So we moved to the next line of defense. In freestyle wrestling, um, exposing their back off that chest wrap alone is two points. But in folk style or MMA or grappling, you can see there it it put Usman in so much better position after after they finished rolling. He was where he would have been if he had sprawled in the first place. And is there a psychological side to wrestling where if you get taken down, you do want to get it back? Yeah, especially in the sport of wrestling, a lot of the scoring does come to uh, revolve around takedowns, especially at the higher levels where both wrestlers are pretty good at mat wrestling and they're kind of hard to pin. So a lot of times that takedown matters a lot. And especially Colby Covington, he was he was a D1 All-American. You definitely want to get that takedown back, even if it doesn't mean that much scoring wise. It's because, I mean, 
probably feels like that's his domain just as much as Usman feels like it's his domain. Do you think that played into the striking throughout the fight where they were constantly thinking about if I overextend, this person's going to shoot it on me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the thing. See, sometimes, you know, somebody plants their feet to commit to a strike and now they're on their heels. It's a lot easier to shoot in. And even if they do have mechanically sound wrestling, it's just hard to recover from that kind of positioning. Covington hasn't fought in over a year. Ron, do you think it took Covington two rounds to get over his ring rust? I would imagine so. I mean, I know there are some fighters who would say that like ring rust isn't a real thing. And that might be true for their individual situations, but for the most for the most part at this stage in the game, especially at a high level, it does affect you if you're out of commission for a while. So it definitely I could see it taking a couple rounds for him to like get comfortable back in there again, especially against the you're against the best welterweight in the division as well, too. So like you're not just gonna come in and start teeing off on somebody like uh Kamaru Usman. But I could definitely see he caught his second win starting in the third round and was and even though he was losing, like, yeah, he lost the fight. Especially in the later rounds, he had some moments where, even though I wouldn't say he's anywhere near as powerful as Kamaru, he was catching him with flurries that made Kamaru look like he took a little bit more damage than he probably did. But it still would look bad from a judge's perspective had it gone on for way too long. Do you think Covington started taking over a little bit or the momentum was shifting towards Covington the second half of the fight? Or do you think it was just the fact that he started looking better than he did the first two rounds that we're just judging it off of that improvement? I wouldn't say the momentum was shifting like for the entire second half because it seemed like every time he started getting going a little bit, like caught uh, Kamaro with a nice few flurries, Kamaro just went back, followed the game plan, went back to catching with straight punches, especially his cross. Because Covington's a softball, so that's definitely going to land a lot more than the jab. It's probably easy, I would say. For me personally, it's easier for me to land a cross against southpaws than my jab, especially depending on how good they are defensively. And Kamaro was taking advantage of that. And also, you know, we've talked about it before. Trevor Whitman is knows how to game plan, even if a fighter has certain vulnerabilities. Like Kamaru followed a very followed the game plan to a T, even when there were some points where I felt like he. T- he looked like he took more damage than he probably did, but it just looked bad with like certain flurries that Covenant caught him in where he threw like at like three or four punch combinations. And then, oddly enough, he would like shoot for a takedown and then kind of shifting the momentum back to Kamara a little bit more, which I was kind of confused about. But yeah, I think I would say the first couple rounds were kind of just the warm up rounds before he really got going. What did you think about those stance switches from Covington? Huh? As far as the stance switches go, I think they helped a little bit, but I also believe that Kamaru Usman is too good to where it was it actually mattered a whole lot at the end of the fight, really, you know. If you're able to keep throwing consistently throwing straight punches, you can deal with somebody who's pretty good at switching stances if you know what you're looking for and if you know what you're game planning for, but if you're not prepared for that, then you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble even if you are a good fighter. And do you feel like those takedowns after getting a good flurry was kind of a strategic error on Covington's part? He might have been better off just sticking with the success he was having standing up. Yeah, I, I believe they were a strategic error. And not not because he's a bad wrestler, but just because he was actually finding success and connecting with certain punches. 
Now, would he have knocked out Kamaru with those punches? Maybe, maybe not, probably not. But if you're able to just swarm a guy and your activity is outpacing their one to two straight shots, depending on like how bad, how badly damage you're getting from those shots, then you stand the chance of winning the fight. Now, if somebody's throwing like a flurry of punches that aren't really doing a whole lot of damage yet, every time their opponent hits, they get cracked or it looks bad, then that's a different story. But Covington was catching him with some nice combinations going in, but like kind of like slowed down, slowed it down and almost restarted the exchanges whenever he shot for a takedown. And how much do you think the knockouts played into Covington's head? as far as like even shooting for those takedowns when he was getting a good flurry or even his hesitancy in rounds one and two? That's a good question. And it depends on the fighter. But, you know, a lot of fighters, as we all know, like to like, especially, especially Colby Covington, are just going to deny the truth (laughs) for the most part. So like, even if he swore up and down that that's not why he was hesitant the first couple of rounds, most likely, that's probably why he was hesitant for the first couple of rounds. Like, you get knocked out. I mean, let alone you get your jaw broken, which he's already, he's also lying about that as well. And just, like, denying that as well. If you get your jaw broken, if you just get knocked out badly, especially if you're fighting against the same person that did it to you in the previous fight that you had, you're going to be hesitant for the first couple of rounds. And in my opinion, it's better off accepting that and dealing with that than denying it and potentially going back to doing the same thing that got you knocked out in the first place. But a lot of people end up being hesitant and just do it like subconsciously. They might not even be doing it on purpose. They just, their body, their body remembers it though, at least. So they will be hesitant even if they don't want to be. He was real flinchy at the beginning and it was almost like he needed to get dropped twice to stop flinching and realize, oh, I could get back up. I could recover. I feel like he needed to know that uh, he could take the punch. He he could take those punches. Because I've been in that situation before where, you know, I might move up to a higher weight class and, like, I get, I get like, hurt real badly with a certain strike or I get dropped. But all of a sudden, the next round, I'm doing a lot better because in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm not made of glass. I can take those shots from, like, a bigger person or take those shots from a good fighter. And then I start to get my second win. It might be too little too late, but I start to – recover from that once I start to realize, all right, I can handle it now. Yeah. Usually after you get dropped twice, you're much more susceptible to getting knocked out later. But in this fight, after getting dropped, he was able to take those hard shots a lot better because Usman cracked them just as hard later in the fight, but Covington ate it and kept coming. So I think a lot of the reason why he got hurt so bad at the beginning was because he was so tense. And then he finally relaxed later. (laughs) Yep. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Let's move on to the fight you two did the uh, most prep for. Namayunas versus Zhang too. Zach, did the fight go as you expected? For the most part, yes. I I was wondering what uh what it might look like if um if Zhang did get reversed. And we saw she 
she did have that um that attempt from deep half. She was trying to stand back up, but I mean, it, when I was watching film on her, I hadn't really seen her from her back much, except for one time when she got reversed toward the end of a round. But takedowns from the uh, from the clinch, uh, she was trying to land in, in positions where she wouldn't have to pass guard in the first place. But Nami Yunus was recovering to guard. She was getting chances to play guard. And so she was able to eventually get up, reverse her. Uh, I was surprised to see um, how well uh, Zhang was riding from Turtle. That's really only something um, you typically see. Uh, it almost looked like folk-style wrestling. And that, I guess that was part of the influence from from Cejudo. I mean, she hooked an ankle. She she was doing a pretty good job for the most part of stay, um, staying tight to Nami Yunus's hips with her own hips. All around, she, she wrestled very well. What could Zhang have done better as far as wrestling and getting back up or stuffing Nama Yunus's takedowns or stopping those reversals. So from her back, um, she uh, again that deep half. It looked like she really only had it to that one side because when when Nama Yunus stopped giving her the leg on that side, she wasn't even trying to work deep half anymore. Not even to the other side. I mean, uh, the first time she tried deep half, I thought there was something there with maybe chin wrestling to this angle, but she just was never really given a chance to get back to that. So probably develop some further develop her her bottom game a little bit, focusing on on escaping uh, sweeping, not necessarily trying to tap people out from her back. Wrestling wise, it, she looked pretty good. She was even when she wasn't um, scoring takedown, she was using the underhook well, getting getting Nami Yunus heavy on the far foot, uh, hand fighting well. Uh, I wasn't expecting. To, Nami Yunus is wrestling to to be that good, even though she did get out wrestled for the most part. Something we see all the time in MMA that we just think must be like every MMA fighter can do is once they're on bottom is to be able to grab a single leg and use it to get back up. But that wasn't something that we saw at all with Zhang. Rose seemed pretty content with um, just uh, staying in the Zhang's guard, um, landing uh, strikes of not a whole lot of consequence, but still enough to um to win rounds in the absence of any offense from from Zhang not really taking many risks to uh, to pass or get a submission is she already in a pretty safe position um though so if you're on top late in the fight those aren't just aren't really necessary risks and especially those opportunities to sweep or grab a leg those open up if you're trying to pass so because Nama Yunus was insistent on staying in her clothes guard, Zhang couldn't isolate one of her legs. Yeah, and actually that was what um part of what shut down the the deep half after that first attempt. Rose spent a lot more time not really stepping up to one leg or the others, and that made it a lot harder to uh, get back to that deep half. Ron, what did you think about the striking exchanges? Uh I believe in the first couple of rounds, at least, I think it was a similar story as to like uh, what we were previously talking about regarding Colby kind of being like hesitant. I feel like uh, Zhang was also hesitant those first couple of rounds, but in a more calculated sense. Like it almost seemed like she knew that she was going to have to get through the first couple of rounds to really like get things going. But even with that, I thought she looked good as far as certain striking exchanges 
constantly moving, staying in and out and keeping. I also noticed that she was keeping her, uh, her right hand almost glued to the side of her gin. And I definitely believe that that's not a coincidence, especially considering what happened last time. So, you know, as far as like the in and out movement, she was getting in good strikes coming in. She might've got caught every now and then, especially in the later rounds by Rose, but nothing that was like too major. Even the times that like when the crowd was like ooing and aahing from a strike that Rose threw, a couple of times it was kind of an obvious slip, a pretty obvious slip. But, you know, when you got the whole arena going against you, it is what it is. Fighters were slipping like crazy that UFC also. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, that was weird. Even the commentators were talking about that, that they don't know what's going on because everybody's slipping that night. And that UFC typically is pretty good about that. Like other organizations, you know, they use bad mats or whatever, and people will slip like PFL is notorious for that. But the UFC, for the most part, never had that problem. Whereas this, every fight, at least one fighter slipped. And even in the Usman Covington fight, they were slipping. They were both slipping. So I feel like with Zhang slipping several times in an exchange, maybe even the judges mistook that for her getting wobbled or getting dropped. Yeah, that's and that's the problem with like that slipping in particular. Especially when, you know, like you said, it hasn't been a problem before, so I didn't really get it. But like there were two exchanges that I remember like clearly where she was getting honestly getting the better of Rose in the exchange, and Rose came in with a counter that didn't really hurt her, but it managed to catch Zhang slipping. So it looked worse than what it actually was. And a lot of the times, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, judges do take into account the crowd noise, especially if they're not really like good judges in the first place. Crowd noise does matter. And as somebody who's been in fights, I have talked to teams that literally will tell you that they will be loud on purpose and like ooh and awe and everything that their fighter does on purpose, even if they aren't actually doing anything just to get the judges on their side. So like a couple of lip slips like that and exchanges like that can can matter, even if Shane, to me, she won the fight. But when a fight is that close and there's already a lot of xenophobia involved in that, any close fight is probably going to go to decision of Rose, unfortunately. So like that was what really like blew me personally. I didn't really like that's I was kind of like when I saw those, I was like, ah, man, that might go against her this round just because even if she did everything right, the judges might, you know, focus on that a little bit more than they should or mean to. Yeah. You know, she was fucked from the beginning when it's a split decision. You're like, okay, I can see that it's competitive. And the judge who gave it to the other person still scored it really close. And then when you hear the final judge's score and it's not anywhere close, yeah, that final judge gave only one round to uh, Zhang, then you knew like that judge was never going to give it to Zhang. So she really didn't have a chance. Yep, exactly. And as somebody who's been in similar situations and has coached a little bit in situations where I know you've been in, you've been in the scene for a while, Sam. So like you've probably been to events where somehow a certain team might be connected to the event organizers and all of their guys who are competing are managing to get decisions. How funny that may be. So like I've been to events like that in MMA and Muay Thai and I've had to tell fighters and I'm like, look, man, unfortunately, I hate telling fighters this, but like you have to dominate this person because right now you're already 0-1 on the score. Like it's already 10-9 in the scorecards for this person. And especially when you add in, you know, just general racism and xenophobia on that mix, 
you know, you basically almost have to knock out the other fighter to even get the judge a chance on the scorecard. And even then, you might get a 4-1 fight in a fight that wasn't even close to being 4-1. Yeah. That's why I don't agree with some fighters or even some journalists saying that everybody would be better off, like the referees, the judges, to the journalists all like joining some MMA school and training. Because I know what will happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We've seen the cult mentality and the cultishness that happens when you join a school or a team. So it's going to be real bad. It's going to be real blatant. I mean, like even with the commentators, when they're retired, but they still belong to a team, you can see and hear how biased they are. Imagine that's a referee, that's a judge, you know, that's a media person. There's been actual like whole scandals where there was a couple of UFCs taking place in brazil and like a fighter got screwed over by a referee and then you find out that referee trains at the same school as one of the fighters so i get where they're coming from as far as knowledge but they're not taking into account the loyalty and the bias that training also creates yeah exactly like it's so it's more common than people want to admit because if you said the quiet powder out loud you know if I were to start popping off names, because there's a lot of them and, you know, in pretty much every combat sport, Muay Thai, MMA, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it doesn't matter. I'd probably be blacklisted from a lot of gyms <laughs> because nobody wants to admit it. But it's so common, even at the amateur level, when fights don't even matter, you're not even getting paid, let alone doing that at the UFC level. Like, that's going to be a terrible mix. And a previous guest, Corey Erdman, who's a boxing journalist, he's actually done some investigations on crooked boxing judges where he showed how their racism affects their judging. You know, he was able to find all these previous uh, racist things that this person had said and believes. And then just like a flagrant judging against a black fighter who was just clearly dominant. Now, this fight wasn't clearly dominant. It was pretty close. But our point is, is bias can happen and racism does affect judging just as crowd noise and sometimes just mistakes, like thinking something was somebody getting wobbled or dropped when they were actually slipping. All those things comes into account because these are actual human beings judging and refereeing fights. But Ron, what do you think Zhang could have done to win more of those exchanges? You know, I personally think, I know this is like easy, this is easier said than done, especially considering she had already gotten knocked out. But I had, I kind of wished in the later rounds, she started getting in Rose's face a little bit more. Now, here's the downside to that. Rose, as, as much as we don't want to admit it, she's good. She's very good. So sometimes that strategy might not play out how it should, even if it might be, even if it strategically should be, is the right thing to do at that time, considering, you know, where you are in the fight as far as the judges' scorecards. But you also, you know, you know, the person in there knows who they're fighting for the most part and knows what they have to watch out for. And I have a feeling that Shang was kind of hesitant, even in the later rounds, to really start getting into those exchanges, kind of like those like dual exchanges he had with Joanna and a couple of fights ago, just because I don't I just believe she just didn't want to take the risk of getting caught with something sneaky that rose through like another head kick or even a good right cross, which was starting to land in the later rounds. So. That would have been what I would have wanted her to do. But in the back of my mind, as a fighter, I know that she was probably like, I just can't get knocked out no matter what, you know? 
Next, let's talk about Marlon Vera versus Frankie Edgar, where Vera won by front kick KO in the third round. Zach, let's start with you. Frankie was doing well with the wrestling, and then eventually he was having a harder time getting Vera to the ground. What was happening? I think Vera was getting a better feel for the timing. I mean, his sprawl is pretty good. He's it's a, it's a nice, quick sprawl. It's mechanically sound. Had a good feel for what to do in the clinch. Yeah, I think it just came down to he was getting a feel for Edgar's pace, Edgar's timing. And once you can get a feel for for someone's rhythm, or maybe even just a just a small tell that nobody else saw before they're going in and shooting. Those little things that you pick up on throughout a fight can start to change things as the fight progresses. It also seems like Frankie now has a hard time just getting a clean takedown. He needs to catch a kick. It almost needs to be like a gimme where he catches a fighter on one leg. Whereas early Frankie Edgar, he was so fast that even if your hands weren't covering your face and not in a position to stop the wrestling, he could still get you down just because of speed. I feel like the last few fights, unless he catches a kick or something like that, he can't really get a takedown anymore. Yeah, he did seem a little slower than Vera. And I mean, number one, he's not getting any younger. Number two, and when I first started watching MMA in 2009, Frankie was at lightweight and he was a small lightweight, but he was over a decade younger than he is now and quicker relative to the guys at that weight. So when you're getting older and fighting smaller guys, you're going to start to lose that speed advantage you used to have. That's a good point, because what made Frankie Edgar so good initially was that he was so much faster than everybody else at lightweight. But now that he's going down in weight, he's not actually that fast. I'll bet he's still fast compared to lightweights, but he's not fast as far as bantam weights go. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and modern lightweights, today's lightweights are probably a little big for him compared to 2009, 2010-ish. That's true, too. So even though he's faster than the lightweights, the lightweights are bigger. And even today's weights are much bigger than they used to be. So now he's even getting outsized in the weight division. Looking at Frankie is a good way to track the progress of how much bigger fighters are getting over the years. Yeah, he's really one of the few guys left who's still fighting at a high level that was doing so when I first started watching MMA over a decade ago. Matt Hughes used to be considered gigantic for welterweight. And now if he was fighting again, he would be tiny. Yeah, he wouldn't be big at all for modern welterweight. At the peak of his career, I was in high school and I just remember looking at him on TV and thinking like, man, that guy's huge for 170. <laughs> Everybody used to think that back then. It's like, oh my God, he's a brick house. He's gigantic. And then GSP came around and he was bigger. And then you had like these other fighters showing up. Like Kamaru Usman is so much bigger than any of them were, you know, and, and same thing with Colby Covington, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos, that would be a fighter who looked like an old school welterweight. Let me go to you, Ron. Vera showed that front kick all night. How did it finally land? It was interesting when it first landed. I couldn't, be- I at first couldn't believe that. Like what am like, you saw the kick before. How did you catch you that badly? <laughs> but then, then I saw the picture. I'm like, oh, it came like directly underneath you now i may maybe if that was like one of the earlier kicks he threw maybe i would have probably given the excuse like all right maybe he thought it was a body kick coming at him instead of from teeth to the face but 
Vera was showing it a couple, a few times during the fight. But like, I also think it's just one of those like super well timed like kicks that just catches you flush on the chin in that perfect spot to where you can't really recover from that, especially with the foot. But it all can also have something to do with just age and ref and reflex time. I mean, Frankie Edgar has been fighting since I was like got into fighting when I was like still like watching WWE in like elementary school. <laughs> and I remember Frankie Edgar is like, wow, like who like that guy's like re- like he's like my size and he's beating all these bigger light bigger lightweights. And the fact that he's still fighting at Bantamweight and he's ironically pretty undersized at Bantamweight too. And still competing at a relatively high level is impressive. But as mentioned before, he doesn't necessarily have a style that translates well going lower into the weight classes. Because if you rely on speed, you go a weight class below you, you might not be as fast as those guys. And especially at Bantamweight, he went from lightweight to Bantamweight over the past couple weeks, or past few years. And like, you know, one, Bantamweights are bigger, but they're also very fast, incredibly fast on top of that. And as you get older, you just can't, you just, you're just not going to be as fast as you used to be. And you can't rely on that anymore. And if you've not able, if you had bad habits, especially regarding striking defense when you were younger, you're not going to change. You're not really going to change it when you're in your mid thirties, unfortunately. Yeah. So let's talk about that. We've seen Edgar get caught several times now by moves that come from underneath the uppercut by Brian Ortega, the flying knee by Corey Sandhagen, the front kick now by Marlon Barra, and even the Korean zombie caught him with hooks and uppercuts in their fight. What's going on with Edgar's footwork and defense where he's caught standing right in front of you and absorbing these kind of shots? I just think it's just old school MMA habits. You know, he, uh, he was, I feel like because he was so small and agile for the weight class he was competing in in his heyday, that would he would be stuff that he would be able to do at lightweight that was considered like, you know, super, super fast at that weight class isn't really going to help him out at Bantamweight, nor will it ever be, he won't ever be able to go back to that just because of his age. And you know, a lot of old school MMA was true, like standing and banging all the time. Now that hasn't really changed much. It's getting better because, you know, now we have so many more like true, like strikers coming into MMA where they're dominating very fast because a lot of fighters, even the younger guys still have this like stand and bang mentality, which the UFC also incentivizes on top of that. So even if you are a good striker, you're not really like rewarded for being technical or like very technically sound have good fundamentals you're rewarded from going for going out and making the fight exciting which we're definitely going to talk about later with in a couple fights but i feel like frankie edgar is just trying to bantamweight is already adapting so fast as a weight class and there's new talent coming in with like every fight and i feel like that a lot of the stuff he was able to get away with even a few years ago just won't fly in a weight class as competitive as Bantamweight from striking and grappling, from a striking and a grappling perspective as well. Yeah, lightweight. He looked like he moved a lot, but it was a lot of like lateral movements when he was being defensive. And then when he was ready to be offensive, he would just start straight in in a straight line 
but his ability to dart straight in was so fast, it caught those lightweights off guard. Whereas now a bantamweight, and also the fact that there's so much tape on him, they recognize that he just goes side to side, and then when he's ready to attack, he just darts in, and they just wait for him to attack, and then they just counter by uh, you know uppercut or flying knee or a front kick. Before, if somebody did a front kick, he would probably catch them with their leg up, and the kick would miss, and they would be getting thrown onto the ground. Whereas now, by the time he's even thinking about dropping levels, he's already eating the kick or the uppercut or the knee. So I think that's part of it too, is that his style that he was able to get away with, where it was just about darting in really quickly, straightforward, is not going to work anymore because he is no longer the fastest guy in his division. Let's move on to the next fight. We have Shane Burgos versus Billy Corintillo, with Burgos winning by unanimous decision. Corintillo was having a hard time getting Burgos to the ground. Tell us about their wrestling, Zach, because this wasn't one of those fights where like, it was a couple of takedown attempts. Corintillo was constantly shooting for takedowns, but he couldn't get any. I don't know if he ever got even one takedown. So what was happening there, Zach? Corintillo was, his shots weren't terrible. It was just about every takedown attempt was a single leg to his right side. And he did a decent job of chain wrestling up into an underhook uh, once the single leg wasn't there anymore. But they ended up up against the cage and he didn't do a whole heck of a lot off the underhook. One cue that I always yell in the corner and in the practice room for my wrestlers who like underhooks, the big thing I yell is use the underhook, use the underhook. That's not a position of, it feels like a position of safety. But it's not. You, if you hang out there, you're going to lose the underhook pretty quick. As Burgo showed, he, he was hand fighting well. Uh, what he did a good job of was squaring his hips back up when they were against the cage. Um, the hip on on the leg that Quarantia was shot on was was angled towards Quarantia because of the shot. And Burgos did a good job of squaring his shoulders and hips back up and uh, getting back underneath uh, Quarantio's um, jockeying for position and then getting back at and getting out of there. One of the things I didn't like seeing was when Quarantio couldn't get the single leg is instead of chaining that to his next move or his next attack or maybe even like coming back up to clinch and striking off of that, he just dove for leg locks. That almost seems like defeat to me. Like he had given up on that takedown or he was already mentally defeated. And he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to die for a leg lock. And when you go for a leg lock like that, even a leg lock, you need to be like really deep on it. So you almost need to have the single leg deep just to get a good leg lock. But because he was not really in on the single leg, when he dropped down for the leg lock, the leg was so loose that Burgos was able to just slide it out of there. So what did you think when he started diving for that? Because it wasn't just once. He kept doing that, which kind of felt like he didn't have that wrestler's mentality of just keep grinding at it. That was ugly. I, I think you I think you got it exactly right. It was a case of, <laughs> all right, I'm 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 out of ideas. Time to throw shit against the wall and see what sticks. Seems like he just had the one finish. And once that wasn't there, it was his wrestling was dead. So that kind of showed you that he was limited in his options. He must have a pretty good single leg, but after that, he doesn't have option two, three, or four. Also then for Burgos's part, his defensive wrestling looked really solid. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I said it before. Um, did a good job of um, squaring back up when he was pressed against the cage. Um, hand fought well. Um, one thing he was doing a good job of about Quarantillo's underhook was uh, in wrestling we call it a th- uh, thigh pry. You, you lean real heavy on your on um, on your overhook. You take a back step, and you, what what that all does is it puts a lot of torque on the sh- uh, on the shoulder and the elbow takes a lot of the strength and the power out of that underhook. This ended up being volume and head hunting versus leg kicks and power shots. Ron, what did Quarantillo lack to really hurt Burgos? It seemed like Quarantillo was very, very... It seems like the game plan was to just out-volume Burgos. And I don't believe that Quarantillo had the power or believe he might not even believe he had the power to like just go out and finish Burgos. However, if you can, you know, there are plenty of fights where a lot of fighters know that they're just not knockout artists. So they make up for that in the volume that they have. And that's not necessarily a wrong strategy to have. But if you're on the receiving end of like you throw 10 punches that, you know, one might get through, they throw a couple or maybe a three-punch combination that cracks you and has you backing up, you know, there's a certain point where that volume is just not going to matter anymore. And you have to start, as my as my dad said, sitting down on your sitting down on your punches a little bit and starting to like even it up with power. You know, my background is in Muay Thai. So as far as like judging is concerned, power is like power and effective strikes really or what gonna or what's gonna win you a Muay Thai fight? You know, if you throw a bunch of different, if you throw a bunch of combinations, but they don't hurt the, your opponent, or your opponent defends them, keeps the hands up, defends them, blocks all the kicks that you throw. They throw a couple punches, rear kick that hits your body clean. You don't defend it. They won that exchange in a Muay Thai fight, and I feel like MMA is starting to take that approach a lot more as far as the way fighters are going about their striking along with uh, the judging perspectives as far as like what's considered effective striking. And I don't think, I believe the game plan for Quarantillo was just to like rely on volume, but when he didn't really have anything else besides volume, you know, just like with the wrestling, he kind of just stuck with it. Cause like he didn't really have anything else. That was kind of all there was to it as far as like, all right, this is, this is what I got. I'm just going to use it till the very end and hope for the best. What didn't work out for him is if he's not going to knock Burgos out or is able to hurt him, why throw so hard? That was the thing that I didn't understand. Is <laughs> like he's throwing volume, but then he just started throwing haymakers and just unlimited haymakers instead of like just touching him, just popping him with the jab. He was headhunting and throwing so hard and tiring himself out. So it seemed like if he doesn't have that power to knock Burgos out or hurt him, then just score the points and don't hit him so hard. And on top of that, then add variety, right? You're not going to knock him out, then hit to the body, kick to the leg, but he only hit to the head. Yep. Then what do you think he could have done to counter those leg kicks? Because he also didn't have an answer for that. I mean, as I tell many students, first things first, before we even get into any type of other defense, check, check the kick, please. Check the kick. Like I, I tell this to everybody in class, whenever we're going over leg kinks, I always like to go over the defense to the leg kicks. And in Muay Thai, 
ironically enough, it might not seem like it if you're only in MMA circles. Leg kicks aren't necessarily scored that high in Muay Thai and a Muay Thai, true Muay Thai setting, because it's a pretty easy strike to get. Despite it being a very easy strike to get, even against an experienced Muay Thai fighter, if you don't defend the leg kick, it's going to cause way too many problems for you later on down the round. So my philosophy is the time to deal with leg kicks is the very first round that you start seeing them appear. Me personally, the moment I realize after about three to five leg kicks that somebody simply will not be able to defend them, I'm going to keep spamming it because if they didn't learn the lesson early on, they're not going to get in later rounds. And after being in fights where I've been on both ends of dealing with leg kicks, watching fights for people in MMA and Muay Thai, both in kickboxing fights every now and then, where somebody's just unable to deal with the leg kicks, usually it's because they made the mistake in the first round, not focus solely on just at least defending that, shutting that down, getting their opponent hesitant to throw them, and then being able to be in a more comfortable position to tee off of combinations and their own combinations of punches and kicks to be able to feel like that they can do that without having to always eat a leg kick every time, every time they try to get started. I think he also thought he could do what he did in his last fight, which was when the guy threw a leg kick, he just blitzed him. Yep. What was interesting was when that plan didn't work out, he didn't really have, kind of like his wrestling, he didn't have option B or C. You know, if you fight MMA and you train, you're used to guys throwing leg kicks. People will throw leg kicks at you during training, but he must have been drilling that, Yep. that he was going to just blitz in and they didn't really work on game plan B or C after that. Yeah, a common thing I've noticed too a lot recently is that, you know, the Dutch style kickboxing, for those who aren't familiar with Dutch style kickboxing, it's basically like they're doing the same strikes as Muay Thai. Like, you know, they still have their punches, elbows, knees, and kicks, but the focus is on heavy volume, heavy hands, heavy leg kicks. And a lot of Dutch style drilling involves purposely taking leg kicks in order to get off a combination of your own. And he was kind of doing like similar that he kind of had that similar philosophy from what I saw in the fight. But the problem is. If somebody has a chin and you're taking, no, well, actually, if somebody has a chin and they have power with their strikes, the way I like to fight, I've never really done well trying to imitate Dutch style kickboxing because I just don't like taking unnecessary damage, especially from somebody who can hurt you with just one strike. And that type of like, all right, I'll take this strike to get off like five more, you know, when that doesn't work and somebody doesn't really train any other way defensively or offensively to like counter that or like balance that type of style, then it's very hard to come back from it in a fight. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. The last fight on the main card was Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler, with Gaethje winning a unanimous decision. Ron, tell us about the striking exchanges, and in particular, the defense. All I'm going to say is that for both fighters, I would absolutely, well, one, I would absolutely hate to be a corner man for Justin Gagey. 
that guy would stress me out way too much with some of the shots that he takes, even when he's winning around. And Michael Chandler, you know, just had, I would say like that first round and a half, like the first couple rounds, like zero defense for anything that Justin was throwing. And there were times where Justin was taking a lot of hard bombs from Michael Chandler. But in the later rounds, if you notice, he was starting to slip a little bit along with those punches. He was starting to use head movement, even if he wasn't using like, you know, the best head movement in the world, not like a like a true boxer would be able to use head movement. He was still doing enough to be able to, you know, take less damage from Michael Chandler's punches because the way I always viewed Michael Chandler, even when he was had his, uh, his reign in Bellator, is that he's a very athletic, very explosive guy. But there's openings in there for like straight shots because he's really he really just wants to knock you out. And if he can't do that, then there's an opportunity for you to win. He just happens to be very good at knocking people out. So you get a guy like Justin Gaethje in there who has a chin in his game for that type of dual exchange brawling, then, you know, he's probably going to win that. He's made a whole career off of doing that. So like the striking exchanges were, you know, in the beginning, they were kind of even in the beginning. But, you know, as the rounds progressed, Justin just started doing what he does and just getting the better of them. And then adding in some defense, taking less damage from those strikes and, you know, won the round pretty, I mean, won the rounds pretty clearly at the end of the fight. Michael Chandler hurt Gaethje several times with leg kicks. Yep. Why do you think he stopped throwing those? You know, I really don't know. Because, you know, a lot of people, me including, you know, thought Gaethje was going to be really, which he was, he was teeing off uh, with leg kicks against Chandler. So my only explanation is, you know, maybe his leg was hurting and he couldn't really throw more after that because Justin Gaethje was just beating his, up his leg so much. You know, as the old saying goes, if you can't stand, you can't fight. But he was finding success earlier with the leg kicks. So I think it was just a matter of Gaethje managing to get to him before Chandler was really able to take advantage. Or, you know, the simpler, the simpler answer is just that, you know, he saw it as an opportunity like, okay, you know what? I'm in a fight right now. I don't really care. I'm just going to swing for the fences and hope for the best. Make this. I'm just <laughs> going to make this a brawl. So that could be it. I don't Who knows? I also wonder if because Chandler's thing isn't leg kicks, his legs aren't that conditioned to throw leg kicks. So I wonder if later on when Gaethje started checking those kicks, if one of those checks kind of hurt him and he wasn't conditioned to take it and he was just like, fuck that. I'm not throwing anymore. Yeah, that a, check, a good check will do that to you. You know, there's a oh, there's a joke in the uh, in amateur Muay Thai, particularly in the U.S., where you know when the shin usually a lot of times when somebody has well, what should happen when somebody has like their first handful of fights, they usually wear at least elbow pads, shin guards, and then <laughs> the moment they have that first fight without shin guards, they start to become very technical all of a sudden because now they can't rely on just that protection. Pr- hating their shins by throwing a bad, a poorly timed leg kick. So that could definitely happen. And Gaethje seems like he's somebody where even if you check it, he doesn't care because he'll keep throwing him. Basically, he's kicked the heavy back so often that his shins are much more durable. That's what it comes down to. Oh, yeah. So it's very, yeah. It's not like it doesn't take a whole lot to condition your shins. It just takes a lot of years and dedication to do it. And if you're like, you know, everybody's always asking, what's the like proper way to condition your shins? And it's like, it's really just, you know, the longer you do it, you just your body just gets used to it. It's not like rocket science. It's like anything. You know, people who do jiu-jitsu might not 
be like as flexible as like a yogi, but they seem to be hyper flexible in certain areas because of, you know, being in repetitive positions in jujitsu. It's the same thing with any combat sport. You know, your body just gets conditioned to what you do day in and day out of the gym. Now, Zach, Nurmagomedov took Gaethje down pretty easily and kept him there. Chandler, on the other hand, had a really hard time taking Gaethje down. What was happening in those exchanges? Chandler's a little shorter for the weight class. I think he's had a hard time getting close enough to Gaethje's legs. And even the one time he he got in real deep on that shot, I thought he had him dead to rights. And then Gaethje just, he's like with um, Usman's chest strap. He realized that he was, that his head was beat, hands were beat, sprawl was beat. Went, his, went into some scrambling, drop, uh, dropped off into, uh, some people call it a funk roll. Some people call it a leg pass. Uh, and I, I try to encourage my, my wrestlers to focus on, you know, head, hand, sprawling and that sort of thing is a last resort. But if you have it and you need that last resort, great to have. And Chandler probably thought he had him dead to rights on that takedown too. And then they just get right back up. Chandler was probably thinking for a second, like the hell I had him. (laughs) So then what was Nurmagomedov doing to get in on Gaethje and take him down so easily and hold him there because Nurmagomedov is maybe taller than Chandler, but he actually doesn't have much of a reach. He doesn't have long arms. So he's not somebody who could just like grab you from far away. So what did Nurmagomedov do so well that helped him take somebody who's now we've seen is really hard to take down? So one Nurmagomedov, um, he did eat some, um, some shots on his, um, looking for the takedowns and he kind of no sold them a little bit. I mean, he just, I think he accepted that he was going to get hit and decided that he was okay with that because the takedown is that important to his game. And then once he was in on the legs, um, I think Gaethje did, um, have some good initial defense and, Nurmagomedov just kept chain wrestling through the position. That's one of the big things that separates Nurmagomedov's wrestling from from a lot of these other fighters is the chain wrestling. The distance he covers on that shot, where even if you sprawl and stuff that shot, now you're up against the fence. Maybe now he's got an underhook and he's actually going to do something with that underhook. Is part of that because his chain wrestling, he's actually that much further ahead of you where he won't let you set up anything to get off one of those scrambles? Yeah, and because he's the one initiating these these wrestling exchanges where you might be wrestling well, but you started the exchange a step behind him, so you're probably going to be a step behind him for the rest of the exchange, too. This UFC also became a great night for Trevor Whitman with all of his fighters winning. Since you're both coaches, what do you think makes him such a good coach? Honestly, I don't know what he does to, to like get his fighters to follow a game plan. But it's pretty consistent throughout the board. I mean, we've seen it with Justin. We've seen it with Rose. I mean, even at the end of the fight when, you know, I thought I thought uh, Zhang won. But Rose did exactly what she needed to do to win that last round. Take her down, keep her there for the rest of the round. You win the round. And, you know, a lot of fighters might not have the uh, the mind to be able to immediately think of that as a solution. They might just start panicking. And especially Kamaru Usman. Kamaru Usman knows how to follow the game plan very well, even if he makes some tactical errors or has some holes in his game. Because of his ability to listen and follow a game plan, it saved him 
it saved him a, a lot of trouble when other fighters might get knocked out for making the mistakes that he makes. So I believe that, like, I just don't know what he's saying to them, how he's describing certain strategies. But he knows, he really does know how to get fighters to just listen to what he's saying. And they do it to almost to the T. And I just find that the most impressive because I don't know about you, but I've been in a situation where I've been in fights where I've cornered fighters where a fighter is in the fight. Like, you're like, they're losing, but you're like, they shouldn't be losing this round. They can beat this person. You tell them all of the basic tactical adjustments that they need to make, and they don't even come close to doing it in the next round or the round after that when all they have to do is do what you said earlier two rounds ago. So that's a skill that a fighter develops. And I'm, I would assume that they, like, he, he knows that and is able, he, he knows how to, like, motivate people in the right way. That's just my guess. What about you, Zach? What do you think Whitman is doing right with his fighters? Because they're not just good strikers. They're also good wrestlers, and they're winning. Um, the big thing that stands out to me about um, Whitman is the way he corners on fight night. That was one of the, uh, learning how to corner a matches. One of the skills that I was pretty deficient in when I first started coaching, he just seems to be in, um, have good chemistry with the rest of the coaches in the corner. Like, um, the Nami Yunus, uh, fight, Pat Barry spoke. He's probably not more than 15, 20 seconds. Once he was done, he said, Trevor and Whitman went and they, um, they kept that up between every round, just that flow of, all right. I speak now. All right. Now, what did you see? And especially um, the, the the relationship between uh, Pat Barry and Nami Nunes, uh they have a different relationship, um, so to speak, than Whitman <laughs> has with her. <laughs> um, so it seems like Pat Barry was more um, engaged in the, um, the emotional side, repeating the, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. And Whitman seemed to handle uh, the more tangible, X's and O's type stuff. They they played off each other very well in the corner, I think. So that's something that people don't talk a lot about is what makes a good coach is the head coach has to have good chemistry, not only with his fighters, but with the other coaches. Yeah, and um, the thing that I'm finding, especially as an assistant coach, uh, when I'm in the corner with the head coach, he kind of takes the reins and then I'm next. Uh, or really, I'm the youngest coach in our staff, so I usually do defer to the to the older coaches on our staff unless they defer to me which again with uh different relationships with different athletes in the room so some of these uh wrestlers that I spend a lot more time with one on one in the practice room sometimes the older coaches will let me take the lead for their matches sometimes it takes a while to uh figure out who's play uh who's good at playing what role or sometimes you might be Depending on who who you're cornering and who you're cornering with, you might be the X's and O's guy. You might be the you might be the sports movie pep talk guy. Ideally, you're able to do both because you might have to do both. And just watching his fighters, just from watching his fighters, what it seems like that makes his fighters different from other MMA fighters is that his fighters have an excellent jab and also have lateral movement. And that's something that I've seen develop with. Kamaru Usman as well is developing a more of a three-dimensional footwork game where now he could also move side to side and create new angles. I think um, to your point on the jabbing and the the lateral movement, um, 
to focus on fundamentals might not be the some cool jumping spinning kick that'll knock someone out with the um with a snap of a finger but it's consistent it's technically sound it's something that can be replicated round after round after round fight after fight after fight that's true. You, you know what you're going to get with Trevor Whitman. You're going to be developing your fundamentals and the basics. When you're able to uh, get everybody on your team to have solid basic fundamentals, then you can kind of use that base as a way to work around their personal styles or their personal strengths. And uh, being also, you know, you might be able to also cover certain weaknesses because they have so much better fundamentals. And as we know, with the average MMA fighter, it's clearly getting better. These days, especially now, you're getting a lot of like true specialists coming into MMA. You know, Khabib was one of them. And then you have, you know, Israel Adesanya, a true striking specialist coming into MMA. MMA is now being forced to level up as far as we can't just get away with just, you know, despite the UFC incentivizing this style, (laughs) we can't just get away with just swinging for the fences anymore. Even if the UFC kind of wants us to do it, we just can't do it. (laughs) Because too many guys are coming in with technical striking backgrounds. Got a lot of MMA fighters, you know, going to just straight up striking gyms, boxing gyms, kickboxing, Muay Thai gyms, and like just mastering the fundamentals and then using that and just adding layers to it, different layers, whether they're striking heavy or grappling heavy, the fundamentals are what's really going to save you in a fight. All right, fellas. Thank you both for your time. Where can people find you? On Twitter, I'm at Golgi Boy Tellum. That's G O L D J A B O Y Tellum. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes. And you, Ron? Uh, for me, I have a couple of Instagram accounts, but honestly, I don't really post anything except just memes on those. So my Twitter account, you can find me. Uh, my username, well, my Twitter at is Grappler Ronnie. It's spelled G R A P P. L-E-R-R-O-N-N-Y, Grappler Ronnie. But my actual use screen name is Jodeci, Joestar. Jodeci, like the uh, like the singer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll put all that in the show notes. And I'll even put a link to Zach and Ron's article previewing the Nama Yunus versus Zhang rematch. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>